pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word you speak to us and we can hear your voice. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Would you please be gracious to us as you take your word and imprint, implant it deep in our hearts that we may know and be conformed to your truth. And all this we pray for your glory. Thank you, Father. Amen. Now, as Lena was reading Hebrews chapter 13, what was going through your mind? What was your impression as you heard it read to us? I mean, it sounds like a long list of unrelated commands and uh, NIV's heading, concluding exaltations. Basically, gives you a clue there. But it's actually not such a big mystery because the writer has told us what chapter 13 is all about. So when we read in our responsive reading, Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 28, you see that he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. And so, since we are receiving this salvation, this kingdom, our response is to give God acceptable worship. And so, in chapter 13, this is the writer spelling out certain aspects of pleasing or acceptable worship he wants to impress on his hearers and on us. So, if you look at your outline, I've uh, grouped the acceptable worship into two points. Verses 1 to 6, loving one another. And then 7 to 17 is following our leaders. And then we end with looking at the benediction. So the first six verses of acceptable worship comes under the heading, loving one another. So that's that's what verse 1 is all about. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. That's the, the main idea and the rest of verses 2 to 6 will spell out some concrete examples of what it means to love one another. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, none of this is surprising. And some of you might even be thinking, I mean, I already know this. You know, of course, Christians must love one another. Tell me something more. Tell me something new. Or maybe some of you are thinking, What's so special about this list? I mean, don't all religions already teach that you must love one another? Well, John Somerville, who is the professor at the University of Florida, likes to conduct this experiment with his class. Okay, so imagine you see an old lady, okay, uh, you know, maybe the size of Jessie, and she's just come out of the bank and you see her putting an envelope into her bag. So obviously she's just withdrawn some money. And then you just happen to be walking home and, the, and you are following the lady and you come to this very deserted part of the HDB block and it occurs to you, hey, you know, this old lady is so small, so weak. There's no one here. I could very easily overpower her and take the envelope in a handbag and then, well, you know, you'll be surprised how much there is. Now, how many of you would do that? Okay, wait, don't, 
Okay, don't 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 need to answer yet. Now, in a traditional shame and honor culture, okay, this would be the reason why uh, the people who belong to that culture wouldn't do it. Okay, because they would think this lady is so much weaker than me. If if I overpower her, that would that would make me look despicable. Right? I would be bringing shame on myself and on my family because I'm someone stronger, taking advantage of someone weaker. Okay, so that's the, the thinking of the shame and honor culture. Basically, it's what would bring shame to me, and so I wouldn't do it. Okay, so that's the, the first reason. Now, the second reason why some people wouldn't, you know, overpower Jesse and steal her money, is that they will be thinking, I mean, it would be so terrible, it would be such a bad experience for this old lady to be robbed. And, and the money that she has, I mean, what if that's her life savings? What if that's all she has to live on? Or what if she has grandchildren depending on her? Now, this way of thinking is thinking about the other person. Alright? Okay, so, now let me ask you, raise your hands. Anyone would rob the old lady in that situation? Raise your hands if you rob the old lady. Anyone? Be honest, don't worry. Sorry? No, no, really rob, really rob the woman. Okay, not, not just this Okay? Uh, Sengin will rob the woman. Okay? Thank you for being honest. Okay. Now, the rest of you who didn't raise your hands, how many of you would not do it because of the first reason? Because it would bring shame on me and on my family. How many would do it for, for that reason? Okay? My, my auntie there. Again, okay. How many of you would do it for the second reason? Because you think about the pain and the suffering the lady might go through. We'll do it for the second reason. I mean, okay, so, okay, so, no, no, this, this two only, no choices. Nipo, don't make life difficult for me, okay. Okay, now, the thing to realize is, until Christianity came along, it was the shame and honor culture that was dominant. Right, so, until Christianity came along, everyone would do it for the reason that, you know, it, you know, so that it wouldn't bring shame on me and on my family. Only with the coming of Christ and His teaching about loving one another, then the society began to have this moral of thinking about the other person. So, this loving one another is something that Christ, that Christianity brought into the world. So, let's look at our first concrete example. In verse 2, it is the example of hospitality. So, verse 2 says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, the phrase, show hospitality to strangers, is actually one word in the Greek. And it's a word that basically means, Loving the stranger. Right? It's loving those who are different to you. And there's the idea of bringing strangers uh, into your home as guests. And so the stranger here is not restricted to Christian strangers. They obviously can be non-Christian strangers. Now the background to this is that uh, when the Hebrews writer was writing this in the first century, traveling was very difficult. Right? There was no such thing as holiday inns, or budget motels you could check yourself into. If you went to a different place, 
you could only stay with someone you knew there because the inns that were available were no better than brothels. So they were actually a very dangerous and very uh, dodgy place. So either that or you actually find someone who will extend hospitality to you. So the specific reason that the writer gives for not neglecting hospitality is that some people, when they do so, have entertained angels. And of course, the most famous example of this is Abraham in Genesis 18. I mean, he sees three strangers coming and he immediately you know, bows before them and offers them hospitality. Uh, even slaughters a calf for them. And only later does he realize that they were angels. They were messengers from the Lord who gave him uh, good news. Now, I think the point is that when you show hospitality, the people that you serve may prove to be angels, may prove to be messengers to you. Uh, They may prove to be people who bring you a greater blessing than what you actually gave out. So, here are some ideas for hospitality today. So, if you notice... There's a lot of you know, drilling going on in your flat. Obviously, what's happening? It's a new family moving in. So you can actually prepare to be one of the first to show up at their door to offer hospitality. Uh, invite them into your home, get to know them. Uh, invite them over for dinner. But if you know there's no going on, then you can look at uh, who are some colleagues who are some, maybe, uh, family members I've not met for a while. Invite such people into your home. Now, obviously, we can also think about inviting people from church. When a new couple comes, new people come, make them feel at home, make them feel welcome. Or you notice someone who seems a bit down or seems a bit lonely, make the effort to invite them, come over, have dinner uh, share a meal, share lives, extend hospitality. Now, you don't have to make it a fancy meal. It doesn't have to be you know, as good as Auntie Maggie's curry or that sort of thing. Right, just a simple uh, meal that you are having, right, that, that's, that's what counts. It's the, the fellowship and the companionship that you're offering to the other person. Now, another idea for hospitality is to actually host a small group in your home. Okay. Uh, another way of extending hospitality uh, as a church is to recognize the importance of the people who greet you at the door, the, the befrienders, the stewards. Uh, you can volunteer to be in such a ministry that you are one of the first people to go up to newcomers or to make uh, regulars feel welcome. Of course, there is the role of the welcoming committee. Uh, There is a role of the people who bring morning tea, who bring breakfast. So, if you are not involved in any of this, can I urge you, as a way of thinking about not neglecting hospitality, to be involved in being a steward, or to be involved in being a welcoming committee, or volunteering to uh, bring breakfast, so that uh, everyone who comes can uh, enjoy that fellowship meal uh, after the service. Now, there is, of course, one other aspect 
to our church hospitality that I must not neglect to mention. After the eating, what must happen? You must, must clear up. That's right. So even the volunteering to clear up, to clean up, is part of our church extending hospitality. So, can I just command everyone to think about uh, whether they can uh, avail themselves volunteer. Right? Many hands make light work. Uh, many people on the roster make it easier uh, for the people who are already there. Okay, one more thing. There is also the, the greeting time in service. Okay, it is completely in line with our worship of God. Right? This is acceptable worship. And so in our, in our corporate worship, it is perfectly appropriate that we take time out to actually greet one another. Because we are saying, I don't want to stand here to worship God beside strangers. I want to, during this uh, greeting time, have a chance to get to know the person next to me. Uh, because uh, we are extending hospitality to each other. Come and let's worship God together. So this is acceptable worship. There's a lot of commands to go through. Huh? Okay, so let's press on. The next concrete example uh, of loving one another is verse 3. Verse 3, Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So it is a call to have sympathy. It's a call to remember, to bear in mind the trial and difficulty that people are going through. It is a call to, to pray for them. Uh, not just one song, but to keep praying for them and to think about how, uh, what we can do to relieve their suffering. And we are called to do this as if we ourselves are in their shoes. And the, the literal uh, word that is used is that, that we are members of the same body. And so if something falls on my foot and, and, and stays there, I mean, it's pain, right? And, so, and all the other members of my body will immediately go to the aid of my foot, right? Lifting up the, the log or whatever, and then my hands will be playing its part to, to massage and sayang the foot, to bring comfort. And so we are to, to treat this, to see this as we are members of one body, when one part is suffering, what can we do to, to relieve, to bring comfort? So friends, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who are suffering uh, because of the economic situation that they're in, who are suffering because they are persecuted for their faith. I mean, remember the many thousands of North Korean Christians who simply because they are Christians are languishing in labor camps in, in conditions that are that is imaginable, unimaginable and unspeakable. Uh, continue to remember the schoolgirls kidnapped in Nigeria. Right? Many of them uh, are Christian. And in news just this week, the sentencing to death of a heavily pregnant Sudanese woman, who simply because she, she is Christian, married a Christian man, and she refuses to uh, deny Christ and turn to Islam, uh, the courts have handed down to her a death penalty which they are delaying until after she gives birth. See, we need to be aware. We need to pray. We need to do whatever we can. 
And can I commend to you this website? It's called the Barnabas Fund. Okay, Barnabas Fund. And in that website, you can see uh, a lot of information about our brothers and sisters and what we can do to uh, relieve their suffering. So, we are members of the same body. What would we want others to do for us if we were the ones suffering? The next example of loving one another is in the area of marriage. Verse 4 says, Marriage should be honoured by all. Marriage should be honoured by all, which means not just the married people, but you know, even here, the single people, right? Single people here must also honour marriage. Now, what are some of the ways uh, let me focus on the single people. What are some of the ways that as single people you can honour marriage? Well, you can honour marriage by having godly relationships before marriage. That means staying clear of any situation that is only appropriate for a married couple to do or to be in. Honouring marriage by a, a single person is, is not crossing the line not crossing the line physically or even emotionally to what God has reserved only uh, for a marriage relationship. So I just want to remind us of some of the traditional guidelines, traditional wisdom that has served uh, you know, our forefathers so well. So these are just some wise and good guidelines. Okay, so number one, don't spend any time at all behind closed doors with a member of the opposite sex. You know, just the two of you. Right? Just, just no, right? Just, just off limits. Don't ever let that happen. That's just uh, something that you say, this is a lie, I will not cross. And similarly, uh, don't avoid being in dark and lonely places. Like, especially with your boyfriend or girlfriend. No, it just leads to uh, potentially all sorts of... Um, ungodly things happening. And in the same vein, don't go on holiday. You know, just the two of you, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, or you're a member of the opposite sex, don't just go on holiday, just the two of you. You know, I'm not saying that you're planning to do something there, but it is just avoiding the situation where something might happen. Now, you might turn to me and say, hey, but, you know, so-and-so from my Christian fellowship, you know, he went on his girlfriend with his girlfriend, eh? You know, they, they promised to be godly and then the church never said anything. Why are you laying down some new rules for me? Well, I think this is recognizing it is good uh, godly guidelines. That this, there's, there's a wisdom to it. Now, it doesn't matter what other churches say. Um, let's have in this church the acknowledgement that these are the standards we'll live up to. That there is uh, wisdom in keeping to these guidelines. And it is a way of honouring marriage. Moving on. The next example is found in verses 5 to 6 and it is about contentment. Contentment. He says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, at first glance, you might think, what does this have to do with loving one another? But, as some have observed, the love of money, the insatiable thirst for more, what is that? That's an ugly expression of self-centeredness. 
right? The love of money, the, the wanting more, is basically showing what is uh, at root in our hearts, which is selfishness, self-centeredness. And selfishness and self-centeredness will do battle against the brotherly love uh, that the writer here is commending us to. So how? How can we be free from the love of money? Well, we need to know this. God has said, you see there in uh, end of verse 5, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I mean, think about it. What a promise. No, you know, don't be grasping at, at, at things because God has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And in the original language, in, in the Greek, it is actually much stronger, this promise. The first line actually says, never, never will I leave you. And the second line, never, never, never will I forsake you. You see, five times God says, never. I mean, what, what's he trying to do? I mean, it's over the top, right? But he's trying to get through to us. That he is a God who can be depended on. He is a God who gives us this certainty, this security that we do not have to grasp gold and silver that is perishing because he is a God who will never, 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 never leave us or forsake us. Now one of the great blessings for Maria and me as we uh, were in Australia is serving alongside this elderly uh, pastor and his wife uh, called Brian and Judy. Really godly example of us. They loved the Lord Jesus and they were so servant-hearted. And one of the things that they always said is, I mean, in all their life, you know, up and down, you know, sometimes no money, this and that, one thing that they said to themselves, that they promised, we will never worry about money. We will never worry about money. This is a couple that has claimed and holds on to the promise of God, never, 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 never leaving or forsaking them. And so, mentioning Brian and Judy, uh, imitating their example brings us to the next point. Following our leaders. Verses 7 to 17. And here we continue learning what is acceptable and pleasing worship to God. Now, when you think about worship, right, yo, I mean, people, Christians always think about worship as the singing of songs, the coming together, there's music, and, you know, the, the, the thing going through our spine, worshipping God, right? But, but here, the writer is telling us, following our leaders, that is what is pleasing worship to God. Now, of course, uh, the caveat is, we are following loyal leaders, following leaders who are loyal to uh, Jesus. Now, why do we say that this section 7 to 17 is all about following our leaders? Because if you look at verse 7, the first verse of the section, it says, remember your leaders, you know, imitate their faith. And the last verse of this section, verse 17, ends by saying, Obey, submit to your leaders. So, this is a, a literary device that it opens and ends with the same theme. Okay, it's called an uh, inclusio. And this is the writer's way of telling us that this whole section, this is governed by the theme of following uh, your leaders. Now, make sure you have uh, chapter 13 open and you need to put your finger 
and verse 7, because I'm going to try and explain the flow of thought. Okay, I mean, because decision I can either focus on one verse, but I focus on one verse, you know, you don't see it in context. But so I've decided I will try and explain the flow of thought in this section. Okay, so put your finger on verse 7 and let's go. So, verse 7. Okay, maybe it will help if I read it first. Huh? Okay, so let's, let's read together. Verse 7 onwards. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Okay, we'll, we'll stop there for now. Okay, so the leaders, okay, have your finger on verse 7. The leaders mentioned in verse 7 are most likely already dead. Okay, these are dead leaders. They have already passed on and they are with the Lord. They've completed their race. And so the writer calls on his audience, look at their life, look at uh, the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Then he says, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And by this he means the Jesus Christ that your leaders trusted in. The Jesus Christ that your, your, your leaders had faith in. That, they, that caused them to run this, way, this, this race with perseverance. This Jesus that they had faith in, His promises, His power. This Jesus was for them the same yesterday, for you the same today, and going in forever the same. So his point is to stick with this Jesus. You saw how uh, your former leaders had faith in this Jesus. He is the same for you today and forevermore. So stick, persevere with this Jesus. And so verse 9, don't get carried away by all kinds of strange teaching, uh, by which he means false teaching. And in verse 9, he gives one example of the false teaching, which is the eating of ceremonial foods, which he says is of no benefit whatsoever. Now, this is slightly some uh, Jewish uh, teaching. And uh, the hearers were being tempted to go back to Judaism, as we know, and so they were tempted by this strange teaching of eating ceremonial foods that would give them, give them strength. But the writer says, no, no. A true benefit is found by strengthening your hearts by grace. Like not by you know, eating ceremonial foods, by, by holding on to grace, by the true grace that comes from the Lord Jesus. And so there's a choice to be made here. Either stick with Jesus and be strengthened by grace, 
all slip back into Judaism and uh, follow these strange teachings of eating ceremonial foods, but which is of no benefit to you. Now, okay, moving on, uh, verse 10, the writer continues this uh, Jesus or Judaism distinction. So verse 10, if you stick with Jesus, then verse 10, we have an altar. And this altar, those who are in Judaism, those who minister at the tabernacle, they have no right to eat. So if you stick with Jesus, you can eat from this altar, you can benefit from this altar, but you slip back to Judaism, you have no right, they have no right to eat from this altar. And what is this altar? This altar is Golgotha. This altar is the place where Jesus was sacrificed. Only those who stick with Jesus can benefit from his sacrifice. Only those who stick with Jesus can have our hearts strengthened by the grace that is made possible through the cross. Now, having introduced the sacrifice of Jesus, the author in verse 11 and 12 makes a comparison between the sacrifice of Jesus and the Day of Atonement. So verse 11 and 12, High priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Now this is a practice uh, that was done on the Day of Atonement. Now the Day of Atonement is the, the biggest, most important day in the Jewish festival where the high priest makes a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. Okay, and on this day, the carcass is not eaten, the, the, the priest cannot eat it, it has to be brought outside the camp to be burned. Uh, the blood brought into the temple, you know, uh, do all the cleansing and everything, but the body must be brought outside the camp. So in the same way, uh, the writer is saying, in the same way, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, to make the people holy through his own blood. So, because Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem, the guy is making a comparison. Jesus also went outside. He was outside, he died, he was crucified outside Jerusalem in order to make God's people holy. Now the question is, what's the big deal about going outside? Well, think about it. Why did the bodies of the sacrificed animals, why did they have to be brought outside to be burned? Because inside the camp is clean. The bodies are dirty, it's unclean, it's defiled, and so it needs to be brought outside. And outside is the place of uncleanness. Outside is the place of, of rejection and of disgrace. And so, the point is that outside the gate was where Jesus suffered. Jesus went to the place of uncleanness. He went outside to the place of rejection, to the place of disgrace, in order to suffer and to make God's people holy. And so what is the Christian's response in all this? Our verse 13 tells us, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. The writer is saying, that if we are going to follow Jesus, we must be prepared to follow Jesus in sharing the disgrace he suffered. If you want to eat from this altar, if you want to have your heart strengthened by grace in order to 
to benefit from Jesus' sacrifice, we cannot remain in the city. We have to go outside to where he is. But outside is the place of disgrace. Outside is the place of rejection and defilement. We have to leave the safe confines of the city. And in the city, there may be acceptance. In the city, we may find security. In the city, there may be this dream job. There may be this great career prospects. In, this, in the city, there may be this girl or this boy. That's your Mr. and Miss Wright. But there is no Jesus inside the city. Jesus is outside. And so if we want to benefit from what he has done, if we want to follow him, we have to go outside the city. And in going outside, we have to leave behind people that we care about. We might have to leave behind things uh, that we consider important. We must go outside to where Jesus is and be prepared to suffer the disgrace of being identified with him. Verse 14, the writer reminds them why they should be willing to go outside. Because verse 14, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. There's no point clinging on. No point trying to hold on to things in this city because this is a city that will not endure. But in going to Jesus, going to Him, we become citizens, we become partakers of a city that will endure forever. A city that is to come, that is eternal. Now this is of course the kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is of course referring to the new Jerusalem that is described for us in Revelations 21 and 22. Now I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes heaven. Uh, The way he describes being part of this eternal city. In the final book of the Narnian Chronicles, uh, The Last Battle, he writes... And this is literally the last paragraph. Uh, This way of describing being part of this eternal city. He says, All their life, all their life in this world, in this city that is not enduring, it was just the cover and the title page. It was just a cover, just a title page. Now, in heaven, now in the enduring city, now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If you are members of this eternal city, you will be beginning your true story, your real story, and it is a story that goes on forever. Being in heaven, because it's an eternal city, it is a story that will go on forever and every chapter is better than the one before. Think about it. We have such an enduring city. So let us go to Him, outside the camp, prepared to bear the disgrace that He bore. Now, for the sake of time, we have to move on to the third point. Praying the benediction. Praying the benediction. Now, let me just get a few... How how, how do you feel as we, you know, took a quick 
look through all these commands and exhortations about what is pleasing worship. Anyone feel, yes, let's go, you know, I'm up for the task. How do you feel about all these exhortations? Well, we come to uh, praying the benediction. And whenever we use the word benediction, uh, you may be familiar with what you know, Pastor Andrew at the end of the service comes and he says, Now may uh, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the grace of God, you know, all that. Yeah, that that's a benediction that's from uh, 2 Corinthians 12. But here, uh, Hebrews 13, that's another benediction. So there's actually quite a few different benedictions uh, in the Bible. And, uh, you know, it's equally appropriate for us to use the Hebrews 13 one, as well as the 2 Corinthians 12 one. But I want to focus on something that uh, the writer specifically prays for in this benediction. Now, after he has made this whole long list of exhortations, you know, exhorting the people, this is what is pleasing worship, this is what is acceptable worship. In this benediction, he shows us what his final what his ultimate hope rests on. Let's look at the benediction. Verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See what he prays for? What he specifically asks is, May God equip you with everything good for doing His will. May God work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ. The writer's acknowledgement that it is God ultimately who can enable us to offer that pleasing Worship. I mean, ultimately, what is going to enable us to lead lives that are different from the world? Ultimately, what will enable us to love others as God has commanded? I mean, what will enable us to follow Christ outside the camp? What will enable us to have the faith that, that or you know, what, what is hoped for becomes present reality? Is it human effort? Is it, you know, sheer grit my teeth, pull up my bootstraps, you know, sheer determination? Is that the answer? No, in his benediction, what he prays for, the answer, who we must look to ultimately is God through Jesus Christ, equipping us, giving us all that is necessary for doing his will, for giving him pleasing worship. Okay, a lot of things has been said because it's quite a long and complex chapter. But remember this, okay? A few words, I didn't count how many. Okay, five, six words. Okay, remember these five, six words. What God requires, God provides. What God requires, God provides. That's what the benediction is all about. Now, can we trust this God? Can we trust this God to provide all that we 
that, that He requires from us? Can we trust this God? Can we really look to Him to provide all that we need to live lives that offer Him pleasing worship? Yes, we can. Because this is the God who has said, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. May God help us.